0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie Pack, your host. Today on the episode, I have a guest, a fellow CSAT named Jeremy Mast. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeremy so Jeremy Mast is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in Ventura, California. He helps those struggling with problematic substance use and sexual behaviors transform their lives and relationships and awaken to new possibilities. He is a sex addiction therapist. He is EMDR trained and is certified in harm reduction psychotherapy. He has advanced training in psychoanalytic psychotherapy from the Institute of for Contemporary Psychoanalysis in Los Angeles. And for more information, you can visit him at jeremymast.com. So welcome, Jeremy. It's good to see you.
1: Hi, Jackie. It's really good to be with you.
0: Yeah, so last month in May, we were both at a symposium for uh, the ITAP symposium that certifies sex addiction therapists. And Jeremy helped me out. I was doing a panel discussion on alternatives for people in recovery, things that we don't necessarily talk about. Yeah. And you had emailed me and said, what about doing harm reduction? And that's not one I think that a lot of people talk about. I had people who attended our little breakout session say people were just like madly writing things down because this isn't one we really talk about.
1: Thank you, yeah, it was such an honor by the way, thank you for um, hosting that panel and for, for facilitating that. I was really honored to be a part of that so thank you for for having that for for having this discussion I you know I think it's a really important way that, that we can help people that are, are beyond the scope right now of what we would normally call traditional treatment for yeah. addiction and, and substance use so that's something I'll probably talk a little bit about, but I'm really grateful to be having this conversation. So thank you.
0: Yeah. So tell the listeners, uh, what is harm reduction?
1: Harm reduction first emerged in the uh, 80s and 90s as a public health policy. So it um, emerged um, mostly in Europe first, and then um, it came to the Americas. In the the social policy world, public health, um, it was really an alternative to fighting addiction through uh, what are traditionally um, understood as the moral or, or disease model that is fighting it with law enforcement, with coercive and often very punitive measures. Mm-hmm. So trying to um, instead uh, approach addiction differently, saying there there are these individuals who are really putting themselves at risk with their continued use, but they don't want to stop. So what, what can we do about this? And so instead of seeing their substance use as something that needed to be essentially battled or fought against with law enforcement, there was a shift in thinking toward um, helping them to use more safely. Mm. And so uh, shortly after that, around um, the late 80s and 90s, harm reduction psychotherapy emerged as a a way to help individuals who were actively using substances to get help where, uh, where they wouldn't have had that help before so we're really trying to meet active substance users in their personal goals and needs uh we're we're trying to start a psychotherapy without any expectation of abstinence really trying to meet them where they are
0: mm. which is a big shift
1: yeah, it is a big shift, and it's a it's a it's a controversial one, but we're really even as we start we're we're actively collaborating with the client with reaching their goals, identifying to them with them what's important and and working with them toward any positive change, however incremental that might be. And that includes abstinence. You know, harm reduction doesn't preclude abstinence. In fact, it embraces abstinence as one way of reducing substance use harm. So it's more inclusive, I think. That's the way I think about it. It's more inclusive of the approaches including abstinence abstinence based treatment it's it's more um, uh, holistic in that regard
0: okay yeah so tell us a little bit about what are some of the uh, like guiding principles in harm reduction approaches
1: the guiding principles we really try to meet the client where they are so so we don't come to treatment we don't come to the uh, consulting room with an agenda of our own we Really try to meet the client where they are identify with them what their goals for their use are mm-hmm. um, because they're if they're coming in to see me they they're wanting help with something and and they may not yet be aware of you know in terms of the stages of change, for those who might be unfamiliar with this, when, whenever we go through any kind of process of making a major uh, decision or life change, we go through um, several stages that uh, in which we first aren't necessarily aware that there's a, a problem that we want to change. That is, um, we're in this pre-contemplation stage. Mm-hmm. We're still thinking about it. We're, we're um, really not aware that, that there's a problem. So people who are, are actively using, they're often told that they're in denial, where harm reduction would say, well, they're really not denying anything. They're just not aware that they have a problem and they don't see it as a problem. Mm-hmm. And so we're in that pre contemplation stage. They may have other goals that they want to work on first before they're ready to acknowledge that they want to do something about their substance use or, or addictive behavior. So, so pre-contemplation, contemplation, uh, preparation, taking action, um, helping clients to identify where they might be in their process of change, uh, but also helping them work on their goals wherever they are. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean that we start with abstinence. In fact, it often doesn't. Many clients that I see, they, they say that they want to be abstinent. And so that's, that's often a goal as we start. But I certainly accept any incremental change that, that we can make toward, toward getting there. Another important principle in harm reduction is that the, the therapeutic relationship is really key. We, we really attend to the therapeutic relationship, seeing that as the primary axis of change.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: a trusting relationship, we, we really lean into that relationship. And, and through the therapeutic alliance, it, it makes positive change much more possible because that person trusts me, trusts that um, any suggestion that I might have would, would be in, in support of, of what they have. or or, or what they're they're wanting so they
0: don't just necessarily see you (laughs) as like a therapist with your own uh beliefs about what needs to happen and that you put on them but you're actually kind of joining them Mm -hmm. in their process and respecting where they are and just journeying with them
1: that's well said yeah and sometimes i offer my thoughts you know been thinking about this for you what do you think or or I might share some thoughts or concerns that I have um, but I you know I think you have to be careful with that just uh, what sharing those thoughts might mean to that individual sometimes it can be experienced as invasive or coercive so um, trying to um, really join with that client because if if I can join with that client and, and maintain that therapeutic relationship in in such a way that that's um, a, a helpful and supportive experience for that client it, it's going to um, help that client feel safe enough to feel supported and to stay in treatment mm. and, and when that happens we that's associated with stronger retention rates for treatment because they're, they're not dropping out feeling unsupported or being like they're, they're uh, told what to do that, that's such a common experience for people struggling with addictive behavior sure. that, that others are telling them what to do i'm not here to do that i'm, I'm really here to ask you what what are you wanting to do and, and what change are you wanting to make and uh-huh. let's figure out together, let's figure out together how we can help you get there. So that any change, however small with regard to the addictive behavior, any incremental change toward uh, more positive use, safer use uh, is, is embraced.
0: Mm-hmm. So what, what brought you to this approach or this kind of thinking? What, mm-hmm. what kind of led you here?
1: So my own story is really what led me here. Um, okay. I had a problem with alcohol for a long time. And I was in therapy uh, for, for most of the years that I was, uh, was drinking. And I mean, that's part of my story. It's, I, I've written about it on my website. It's, it's, it's no secret. You know, when I was in therapy, my, my therapist really didn't tell me what to do. They, didn't, um, they were curious about my drug use with me. Mm-hmm. And it helped me feel safe enough to not only talk about that with them, but that they would really support me. in in whatever I chose to do. And it took me a long, long time (laughs) before I was ready to make a change. And I didn't realize it then, it took me a while to understand this, but I didn't realize how complex my relationship with alcohol was. Mm. So I couldn't make the change that I wanted to, even when I did decide to make a decision. There are some under, other things that I knew that uh, I needed to work on that, that needed to be addressed that were part of my story, that, you know, part of my relationship with alcohol, those, those complex emotional, psychological uh, factors that, that are part of any relationship with uh, addictive behavior, which is, I think, another part of um, what harm reduction would say is that any substance use or, or addictive behavior has so many meanings to it that often aren't acknowledged or even conscious, so that if we can help to make those uh, more talkable, that is, uh, if we can find a way to work through those issues that perpetuate and undergird the substance use and the problematic behavior, then we're in a position to really strategize Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in a more effective way uh, how um, change can happen. So that's that's what I needed. I, I come to harm reduction because that's essentially what my therapists were doing with me because um, even though they may not have realized that I was really needing that kind of help even though my um, substance use really wasn't it, it was really on the scale of things it was much more moderate but it was very chronic so um, and, and it was difficult to change on my own which was part of the reason why I was in therapy so it really emerges out of my own story and I think my desire to Well, extend the reach of uh, psychotherapy and treatment for these individuals, but also to, uh, because I see the therapeutic relationship as such an important part of the process of change.
0: Yeah, I think there's been several studies that talk about, you know, regardless of the model or approach that therapists take, one of the most effective things in treatment is that therapeutic relationship. Yeah, And as I'm listening to you tell your story, like it's reminding me of several clients, even that I currently have, but also that I've worked with over the years. And it it just makes me think like, there's a lot of these clients out there that the typical traditional approaches aren't working for. Yeah, Yeah, And that's not because they're not a good client, right?
1: No, but tragically, when they don't adhere to what, treatment wants, and I, I say that with some quotation marks there that <laughs> right. listeners can't see, but you know when they feel like they're they're not sober, they can't stay sober, that that's that been a problem for them and they might um, have a, a slip or, or a relapse or what um, harm reduction might say a return to use. Okay, this tragic uh, sort of either or all or nothing thinking that can really um, set many individuals up for huge shame spirals mm-hmm. that then they feel they feel, even though they're not being a you know there's no such thing as a bad client but they they feel like a bad client they feel like a failure and can really create uh, so much shame and and hopelessness mm-hmm. and they may not be able to see or, or ready to acknowledge you know well what changes have been made here what what are you working on well you sure you return to your use but you know what you you drank less this time or you know it was um, it was three days instead of two days in between your binges, uh, something like that. So that, you know, we're, we're, we're celebrating positive change and we're, we're working incrementally with people toward change. We're really wanting to hang in there with them. And instead, you know, traditional treatment. I've seen some studies that say as many as 80% of people who use uh, substances or, or addictive behaviors, they, uh, they aren't quite ready to change. So they're, they're being missed by what, what we um, would say is uh, abstinence-only uh, treatment that really requires abstinence as being the goal. But many people who use substances, they they don't want that as their goal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they may not know where to turn, um, even though their substance use is, is getting more problematic. And so, you know, if, if I think if we can Find a way to to reach people with the the news of harm reduction saying treatment may not necessarily require you to be abstinent right away. Uh, Let's figure out what you want together and and work toward that. Then I I think a lot more people would be helped. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing this work.
0: Yeah, it it casts a much wider net. Mm -hmm. And then like you said, it doesn't bring in the shame component the way that other approaches might do. And yeah. so it could keep them in treatment longer. It may kind of just let them follow their own arc towards whatever yeah. improvement looks like.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So as you talk to other therapists about this approach, how does that, like, do they understand the benefits to it? Or what's the typical reaction as you talk to colleagues?
1: It can vary. Um, most of the clients um, that I talk with are, are very open to it. Most of the colleagues that I mm-hmm. talk with are, are very open to it. And, uh there there are some people who um, can be concerned or can um, can have their own feelings or reactions about it that are are less than supportive and I get that you know I, I think that they're coming from a well-meaning place oftentimes those who are oftentimes the strongest reactions come from those who are uh, providing that traditional treatment and I really want to make this clear I don't have anything against traditional treatment I think that as a whole you know we might benefit from changing how we think about addiction and how we approach it. But abstinence-only treatment, uh, it, it's um, really been a lifesaver for many people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I, I don't want to do anything to discount that or um, downplay the importance of that. But those, the strongest reactions often come from folks who, for whatever reason, are invested in, in that worldview, that way of understanding addiction mm-hmm. as, um, as something that needs to um, be treated with abstinence. Um, and, and that that's the only way that addiction needs to be right. and must be treated. And,
0: and oftentimes that's what worked for them, right? And so this uh, yeah. idea of another modality it might threaten them or might, yeah. might create some anxiety about what has worked for them.
1: Yeah, or, you know, th- they might see me as um, enabling drug use or, or substance use, which, you know, is, is um, sort of an old uh, sort of model you know, right. talking about the disease model, and then um, you know the enabling, the codependency enabling that idea comes from. I don't see my work that way at all. I, I really see myself as partnering again, collaborating with the client on working yeah. toward positive change. But that's a comment.
0: yeah. I think I think in the treatment field, there's a lot of maybe some emergence of this thinking of both and.
1: Yes. And yeah. so
0: it's it's evolving. Maybe some of the more rigid. Ways that we approach things, and it's adding new perspectives or new approaches that might work for more people. And I think that's a good. Yes. Choice.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And so that's why I was so thrilled when I got your email. I think what was it uh, earlier this year, well before okay. the symposium, knowing that you were going to have this conversation with in the sex addiction field, because that that's something that I I see happening in the sex addiction field, and um and that's really. Uh, really exciting to see mm-hmm. and begin to see. I'm really happy about that. Yeah. And I want to continue that. Right. Much.
0: So mm-hmm. let's talk more kind of the language maybe of this approach. Mm-hmm. Like what does it look like? What's the language? How do people talk about this approach? What do like? Is there support groups, right? Like what does all that look like?
1: Oh, I wish there were support group. Harm reduction uh, on the whole, it, it's It's becoming um, more common, but there still needs to be a lot of work done with regard to making harm reduction uh, treatment as available as abstinence-only treatment. Okay. Um, So I I was recently in a uh, training with some uh, other harm reduction uh, psychotherapists in New York, and uh, we 're sort of joking we, we need our own we need our own 12-step group mm-hmm. um, you know trying to find ways of, of making this work more more accessible is something that I've really been thinking about and, and wondering how to do but in terms of in terms of language and and just uh, trying to um, help clients understand some of the benefits of this you know really not sure how else to do that other than beyond podcasts like this with you and um, keep talking about um, the benefits. I think that the more that we can do as professionals to raise awareness about what we're doing um, with other professionals, helping them understand what we're doing and and promote dialogue, promote um, open dialogue, which which is something that we try to do with patients, but sometimes you know, with, with controversial issues where it can be difficult among professionals. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've certainly encountered that when we talk to others about this. So... Just trying to spread the word. This movement is certainly happening on social media, and you know the, these conferences I see in my my Facebook feed, all about what is really called this idea of compassionate pragmatism. So harm reduction is based on this philosophy of pragmatism, that is, what can we do that is practical and that works for you in a compassionate. And loving way, and that all of our interventions are really based on that philosophy of of helping that person experience the kind of um, positive change that that they want. Mm-hmm. So, trying to understand uh, that, uh, in some ways, there is a shift in the dialogue um, o- away from this all or nothing abstinence only model uh, moral model certainly that the disease model replaced but it, it's still there away from from that and more toward seeing something uh, seeing that addiction is, is something that that we can that we can really do something about and that we can learn different behaviors and ways of being in our lives
0: so you you hit on this a, f- a few minutes ago I want to see maybe about expanding so would we talk about in you know, a harm uh, reduction model would we really talk about like relapse or do we just talk about like what does the week look like and and use right like how does that language fit
1: so we probably wouldn't talk about uh, a relapse mm-hmm. we might i think i've certainly used that language before and, okay. and you know I, I think i i tend to use whatever language makes most sense to the client okay um, if, if they use the word relapse, I probably might use the word relapse, but if they don't, we, we might just simply notice whatever ways in which they are talking about their use or whatever uh, in whatever way they are talking about their drinking. I think that when we use this word relapse, it can be a pretty loaded word.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Just like addiction is a pretty loaded word.
0: Right. And what
1: we're trying to do, we're, we're trying to move away from loaded or often stigmatizing language. So trying to and, and, and this is this is a limitation, of course, because um, you know any word that that we might uh, use has the danger of of being fraught with these kinds of meanings. Right. But you know many people feel a lot of shame when they are called an addict, or when they say that uh, I have a sex addiction, and mm-hmm. that's that's actually liberating. That's actually freeing to many people. They they have a lot of hope. Say, like, oh yeah, this is this is a sex addiction, or this is a porn addiction it's treatable. Now we can know what to do with that. But many others, they uh, might have a lot of shame around that. So I think just it, it's part of starting where the client is in helping them understand, you know, what might make sense to them, how might they be understanding their, their use of their addictive behavior,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and trying to join with that language, whether that's relapse um, which which is addiction language, right? But I think the extent to which we we use that language, it can encourage, not always, of course, but it might encourage that all or nothing thinking. And so uh, that's, that's, I think, what we're trying to move away from. You know, in terms of the stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, that is preparation, preparing for making a change, um, action, you're actually implementing those changes and taking action. After action is maintenance, but then return to use. So that's something that's very normal. And if people who are struggling with these kinds of uh, behaviors and and substance use, that they can understand that, uh, and if family members can understand that, it's a really difficult thing sometimes, but if they can understand that continued use or return to use is normal as a part of the process of change, I mean, have you ever tried to make a change, and then you find yourself doing that thing that you don't want to do? Oh
0: yeah, sure. I, 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 I think have. that's a normal part of trying to change, right? Oh yeah,
1: of course. And so you know, the more that we can uh, normalize that, I, I think that it, it can uh, mitigate the shame that people experience with with what we might traditionally call a relapse or, or slip.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit because I I know there's listeners who are maybe very very much in the camp of abstinence only. Mm-hmm. And especially like with drugs or alcohol or something, it's this idea that like, it's an allergy, right? Like we are allergic to alcohol, we'll always be allergic to alcohol. Any type of drinking would result in the problems. How would harm reduction talk about that?
1: Thanks for asking that. This is, this is certainly a more controversial part of harm reduction. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that, it's, it's, um, it's not for everybody, you know, if a client were to come to me and and say that, I would be, I, I would say, okay, you know, I can understand that you really don't want to, to to continue your drinking. Let's figure out together how to help you reach that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so joining with them in their understanding of that, but um, the the allergy or what is really, you know, Jelinek's language of that disease model thinking about thinking about addiction as a disease and and, um, and and to reiterate you know I want people to make sense of their addiction however it makes sense for them mm-hmm. I really do Whatever works for you whatever helps you make and continue to make positive changes in your life do it go for it. But for some people, the disease model doesn't really work. It doesn't. They don't like the idea of feeling like they have a disease. They don't like the idea of feeling powerless, and so they don't want to go to a telestrat meeting. They don't. They may not like the idea of having a higher power, uh, for whatever reason. And so, you know, thinking about thinking about addiction, I find that with with those clients, it can be more helpful to think of uh, addiction as more of a uh, learning disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, something that um, they might have started to use in response to uh, you know whatever perhaps trauma, perhaps a difficult circumstance that that over um, repeated exposure to that uh, what started out as a pleasurable activity, then they learned over time uh, to use it in ways such that um, it became more and more problematic and out of control. Mark Lewis wrote about this in his book, uh, the Biology of Desire: Understanding the, the Changes in the brain not as uh, reflective of those physiological changes of being, of a disease, but but as um, natural changes in the brain. Whenever we learn anything, even when we learn to use problematic, uh, when we learn to use substance use, when we learn to use substances in a problematic way. Okay. So so I think giving clients some options for understanding their substance use, but but even those, you know, in terms of they are using um, or understanding their their addiction and the addictive behavior as a disease. I would say, well. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what makes the disease tick a little bit, and what what gets you going. So, talking about some of the vulnerabilities and and context in which are often most problematic for them, um, which which is very much a part of the harm reduction model, understanding the complexity of their use and, and helping them uh, become more aware of that.
0: And how does harm reduction work with like, or or what would friends, family, partners need to know or Understand about the harm reduction approach.
1: You know, harm reduction I think can be very helpful for families. You know, oftentimes with with families who are struggling with a, a loved one's substance use uh, or addiction, there there can be a, a, a real struggle. There's this awful struggle of you know, well, okay, so something. Th- this is kind of some. This is the cycle. Sometimes that that it very often happens. So something happens. There's some kind of chaotic episode that might happen with the loved one's drinking. The Loved ones are scared, they're afraid, they're um, very concerned for their loved one, which because of their chaotic use, it, it puts the person struggling with their use in, in this one down position so they feel like they have less power and autonomy. And the, the loved ones can, from this position of being concerned and, and really scared, they, they can say from this one up position, you need to get in treatment. The loved one really doesn't have much of a choice but to agree. Mm and to comply, and so there's this, there's this power imbalance where they, where they don't feel like they can make their own decisions. So they go into treatment, and, and what happens? Sometimes in those contexts, treatment is successful, and, and I have no doubt that that happens, and I don't want to discount that at all, but sometimes, because the choice really wasn't theirs, uh, the person struggling, um, they, they might complete their treatment. They might leave treatment prematurely. You know, I worked for six months in a abstinence-only treatment facility, and I saw this time and time and time again. Treatment was not successful because the person, the client, uh, was was essentially forced to be there. Mm-hmm. And so what happens in, in treatment, they might act out, they might rebel in other ways. They're trying with, and, and, and here's what's often missed, is that they're trying with their substance use, to escape this often all too common dilemma of submission or rebelling that they couldn't work out in their families of origin and that they're now trying to figure out uh, in treatment. So treatment um, says you need to be abstinent, you need to do all these things and treatment uh, isn't successful because of because it wasn't their choice, because they don't feel like they have any power autonomy. And so they, they try to get power and autonomy back to feel in control of their own lives. And they, they don't understand that, that the substance use has been a way to get out of that awful bind. Yes. I'm saying a little bit too much here, but- you know. Well, I think you
0: bring up such a great p- i And I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm like, I have yeah. totally seen this, right? Where yeah. for a lot of people dealing with problematic use, right? Whatever that looks like, whether it's substances, whether it's behavior, um, there is this piece of like compliance that's always been part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And anytime we're being compliant, right? And I will explain to clients like compliance isn't necessarily being, it's not necessarily choice. I mean, Mm -hmm. oftentimes compliance is not choice, right? It's going along Mm -hmm. to get along, which has been part of the maybe trauma in the past, Absolutely. And so these important parts that that I will say, like these characteristics of functional adults never quite got developed because you were going along to get along, right? So you don't know how to have a voice. You don't know how to disagree and still be okay, right? Unless it goes into this extreme of rebellion and, and so how do we find this balance, which to me, I'm always like, this, this is recovery, right? Like living mm-hmm. as a functional adult saying, no, I don't agree with that. Like yes. my path is different my, and that's okay. And I don't think we often talk enough about that because we do sometimes, I mean, sure, compliant clients are easier clients, but that's not necessarily a healthy recovery.
1: No, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, and, yeah. And I mean, you—I'm sure—been sort of in this situation before, where there's this sense in which um, they're they're being compliant, um, something that you're picking up um, with with that client, and then all of a sudden, what happens? They they have this they have this binge, or they they um, return to their use, and and then they're flooded with shame, right? And and so you know, harm reduction um, instead of you know this traditional treatment. A model that that uh, that would frame that as a relapse and frame that as uh, something that then needs to be addressed. That you know, how can we then find our way back to abstinence? Harm reduction would would be curious about that use. Mm-hmm. Say, well, boy, what was what was it like for you that you needed to drink? Uh, wh- what was happening? Can can we talk about that? It takes any return to use as a learning opportunity. To continue to uh, not only be become more aware of, of some of the um, underlying emotional, psychological factors that contribute to and perpetuate use, but also to tweak those strategies that the individual is using in order to move toward changing their behavior.
0: Right, because all behavior makes sense. Yes. And, and so I'm, what, what I'm hearing you saying is we've got to understand what, what was going on in that moment that, you know, binging or getting completely yeah. blitz made sense for you.
1: Yes. And to the extent that we don't, and this is something that often happens with absence-only treatment, to the extent that we don't, to the extent that we say something like, you know, my addict made me do it, which mm-hmm. is something that we hear all the time, right? This sort of we can encourage dissociative split of the self that isn't it doesn't start in treatment. It actually predates treatment as part of the reason why I think people often start to use is that. Um, they're they're trying to figure out what to do with those dissociated feelings. Then uh, those over time, those problematic uh, behaviors and the substance use gets located in those uh, dissociated parts Mm -hmm. and they get split off in the extent that that we aren't curious about those parts of ourselves and and to the extent that treatment failure, treatment fails to help the individual integrate those parts of the self. That is what long-term recovery looks like for me. Is yeah. helping to integrate those disowned parts of the self, so that you really don't need to drink anymore. Or if you if you do want to drink, you you know, or or use or whatever, you have more choices about that. Instead of drinking to often deal with those disowned parts, to to manage the feelings that are coming up or are overwhelming because of how you experience that uh, part or those parts of you.
0: Right. So. Right now, uh, harm reduction is really kind of about substances, but
1: yeah.
0: talk about h- how it also fits for the behavioral addictions.
1: Yeah. So I acknowledge that. I think that there's uh, more work that we can do here. I, I think that, uh, that that's something that I'm certainly passionate about. But I think that first of all, uh, just shifting the conversation about uh, addiction within our field and continuing that shift, being open to other ways of understanding addiction and, and being aware of how Uh, the language that we use and how our theoretical understanding of addiction uh, can impact how we uh, conceive of treatment and what recovery looks like. Uh, That was another reason why I was so glad to have that conversation with you during that panel Um, is that if we can continue to having conversations like that, we can think about what recovery might mean to more individuals and thereby um, extend the reach of treatment. Mm You know, I think that um, we too might also find some practical ways of helping people uh, reduce uh, the harm of uh, their continued behaviors. You know, many people who come to me, and most of my work right now is with um, problematic sexual behaviors, right? And the overwhelming majority of people that I see um, do want to stop. They do want to be asked and, and have that as their focus. But one of the ways in which I think harm reduction can be helpful is retreating from that all or nothing thinking that says, we're certainly working toward abstinence. We're, tr- we're working toward um, helping you to leave these behaviors behind. That's going to be a process for you because of the embeddedness of these behaviors in your life and your complex relationship to these behaviors and trying to give people some tools to understand that right. um, instead of this expectation that they can often place on themselves to be abstinent right away. Yeah. Uh, so also- helping they-
0: yeah. Oh sorry, I also think with the behavioral addictions, harm reduction would pair really well because with most of the behavioral addictions, abstinence really isn't healthy. right oh, like, no. get, oh, getting course. abstinent sexually does not mean I never have sex, right? We're not talking oh, about yeah. becoming asexual.
1: uh-huh. No, you you know sexual behaviors we need, we're all about changing your relationship with sex.
0: Right, and and yeah. harm
1: reduction is all about changing your use with with the addictive behavior, whatever, no matter what that means. Right, and so uh, you're absolutely right. Whether it's with eating or, or sex uh, sexual behaviors, you know, that's that's right on, Jackie. It's um, it's a good point. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I'm so glad to have this conversation with you and and talk about some of the shifting that. Is happening, but also still needs to happen in relation to our approaches to addiction and kind of understanding. Because I think for most addiction, it is pretty complex.
1: It is. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the more that we can um, bring as professionals to our understanding of that complexity and help clients understand that per- complexity, it's going to mean, I think, better outcomes in treatment, better attention, and mm-hmm. we ultimately help more people.
0: Yeah. So before we wrap up, anything else you want to add about harm reduction or uh, important points to consider?
1: You know, I think one thing that I might say is if you are listening to this right now or if you have a loved one that's listening to this right now who they may not be ready to stop or they or that you might not be ready to stop, you know, help is out there. Mm -hmm. I would just encourage you that there's many options and, you know, if you, you have trouble finding a harm reduction therapist, send me an email. I, you know, I would love to help you find help for your loved one, find help for yourself. If you're interested in this way of working, um, whatever your goals might be, I, I think that I would just uh, want to put that out there because, you know, this way of working can be, can be very powerful. You know, the, the more that we can do to help more people is uh, I think exactly what um, I'm really passionate about.
0: Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're this voice out there and that you reached out to me and uh, were willing to teach me about this because in many ways, what I learned from you helped me in the areas that I do feel like I get stuck with clients or the clients get stuck. And I'm like, I'm not sure how to get through this. Right. And so often what you taught was like, oh, okay, this is what's going on. And this is how we as a team, right, therapist, client Mm -hmm. team work through this. Yeah,
1: I talk I like about it. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep it's, it's certainly a team approach and, and, and that relationship between the client and the therapist that's um, so important. Whatever we need to do to attend to that and make sure that yeah. that's um, a safe place for the client is top priority, yeah. certainly. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you again, Jeremy. For those of you who might want to reach out to Jeremy or learn more about him, you can visit him at jeremymass.com and I appreciate you coming on and being this voice.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And please, if you need to reach me, my email address is jeremy at jeremymass.com. I'd love to hear from you.
0: Okay. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist.